Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we talked about some of the earliest surgeries in recorded history, along with the hurdles medical science would have to clear before being considered modern, beginning with our understanding of human anatomy. This time, we'll continue solving those problems and bring surgical medicine into the modern age. As with the first part, this does get a bit graphic from time to time, nothing R-rated, but we will be talking extensively about surgical procedures. Let's begin. Okay, you're on HI101 with Yumiko Hachinruther. Hello. Hello. And we've been talking uh, about surgery. Mm-hmm. And it's been super fun <laughs> kind of gross. Kind of gross, but mostly really interesting. Mostly. Yeah. Yeah, I tried to keep uh, tried to keep it to like the greatest hits and less about like the... <laughs> the greatest hits of medicine. Yeah, totally. No, absolutely. I don't I know. Like There's it. so much good medical information out there. People love hearing oh, yeah. about this stuff it's yeah. it's kind of as much as i love doing this show i keep thinking about like how many other great podcasts there are out there that, that <laughs> do this stuff like really really well and uh yeah it's 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 interesting stuff but i get the benefit of just like doing all the most interesting things in one shot and then i'll never touch surgery again unless it's just <laughs> tangentially related so why not start off with anesthesiology cool which is so much fun because, again, we're not going to talk a whole lot about actual surgical procedures, more about how you get to a point where you can actually do surgical procedures of any, like, any major consequence other than, like, setting bones and, like, mm-hmm. you know, cutting off skin tags and stuff like that. Uh, because, you know, uh, as we talked about last time, people were capable of doing the surgery from, like, a the mechanical standpoints. Like, they were able to... Uh, well, we talked about a medieval Arabic doctor who was able to do cataract surgery. Mm-hmm. That's not really the problem. They could figure that stuff out. We have uh, three or four major problems, specifically bleeding, knowledge of the human body, which we covered last time. Yeah, knocking people out so that they don't have to deal with the pain. Mm-hmm. And finally, keeping the the wounds clean because infection is is far worse than the trauma of the surgery itself. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, we we could have done that stuff if we had those tools at our disposal far earlier than we're talking about. But yeah, it took us a while to figure out how to do all of these things properly to get to a point where surgery is the legitimate medical practice that it is today that we think of. Anesthesiology is fun because mostly what we're going to talk about is 
people getting super high. <laughs> like that's mostly what we're going to talk about right now. <laughs> because that's what, I mean, that's not really what anesthesiology is. Anesthesiology has a couple of goals when it comes to surgery. One, and, and I mean, we're talking mainly about general anesthesiology here, mm-hmm. which is, you know, not being conscious for the surgery. One is paralysis because you don't want people flopping around while you're trying to cut on them. Mm-hmm. One is unconsciousness because you probably don't want to see what's going on. Also, you're paralyzed and paralysis really sucks. So you don't want to go through that. Nope. One of them is actually amnesia. You don't want the body creating any memories during the surgical procedure. So they're actually attempting to create a state of amnesia for the period of time that the operation is being conducted. Mm -hmm. And uh, one is analgesis, pain relief. So you don't want the body feeling pain during this procedure. Mm -hmm. And anesthesia is kind of funny in that it's not actually like unconsciousness as we think of unconsciousness. It's not the same as being asleep. It's not the same as being knocked out. It is kind of its own weird mental state that Mm. doesn't really have a parallel. Like its own state of existence for the body. Kind of. Well, more for the mind for yeah, the body. For the, yeah. Because um, that's really what you're trying to focus on. You're, you're going to do horrible, horrible things to the body. The body's doing <laughs> its own thing. You want the mind not ha- not to have to deal with any of that. And yeah. that's, that's really the goal of anesthesia. And so for basically all of the time that we can talk about here, generally what you do is you get somebody super drunk because that helps relax their muscles, helps them forget some of it. <laughs> It helps a little bit with your uh, pain receptors, mm-hmm. and yeah, if you get if you go far far enough, you can get them to to pass to out. Pass out. <laughs> but it's still not really the same thing. And a no. lot of the times, what you've got is like a really drunk guy that you're basically telling him to bite down on the, you know, on a wooden stick and and yeah, try not to move too much because I'm about to cut something. Yeah, Ooh. and it sucks. It really, really sucks. There's no there's no getting around that. It's it surgery is never a good thing and for most of the history that we're talking about here you only have surgery if you have no other option and i mean that's not that much different than now it's just that when you do a cost benefit analysis of when it's okay to do surgery the benefit of surgery outweighs the cost a lot earlier with things like anesthesia in play Mm -hmm. because you're not going through something at least from the mental side nearly as traumatic have you ever been under general anesthesia i've been on kind of what they called like a twilight sedation Mm. yeah twilight i've heard that's that's really interesting stuff i've never i've never experienced it the science between or behind twilight anesthesia is really interesting yeah how'd that go for you (laughs) well i remember asking the nurse how long it was going to take to kick in and as soon as i was done asking the question, I burst out laughing. Okay. I could not stop laughing. And then the doctor came in and I was trying to tell him a story and I fell asleep halfway through. Perfect. So (laughs) that's how that went for me. I feel like being an anesthetist would be number one, terrifying because let's be perfectly clear. Anesthesia is not a safe thing. No. It's, it's actually, it's actually very dangerous and you've (laughs) got to get it right because it's kind of a narrow window where you get the optimal effect of anesthesia. If you don't give them enough, bad things happen in terms of, you know, waking up too soon, Mm -hmm. in terms of creating memories, in terms of feeling pain. None of that is good. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you go too far, it's really easy to kill somebody with some of these drugs. Yeah. Like, I mean, you're, you're basically dipping them somewhere below unconsciousness towards death 
keeping them level and then bringing them back out. It's yeah. it's a really tricky science. And I, of of the medical professions that are out there, that that seems like a very stressful one. I have a lot of respect for people who do that job every day. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I feel like it would be so funny because <laughs> the things that people say when they're going into and coming out of anesthesia just seems hilarious. Yeah. I don't know if that makes up for the stress in my mind necessarily, <laughs> but oh man. Yeah, I did I did general anesthesia the one time and it was awesome. Mm-hmm. It was like, okay, we're going to do this procedure. Here, p- we're going to put this on your face. Count down from 10, 10, 9, 8. Okay, we're done. And it's like, yeah. what are you talking about? And it's yeah. like, yeah, it's been 45 minutes. Don't worry about it. Yeah, it's it's weird. And then I got real angry at a nurse because she wouldn't give me any water. And then she hit me up with some morphine. So good day all around. <laughs> It's a great thing to look up on YouTube if oh. you're procrastinating or if you've got some time on your hands. Just, just anything, really. I, <laughs> I would I would fully recommend any videos of people Hilarious. coming out of general anesthesia because, wow, they, they give you the good stuff. Oh, yeah. The good stuff. And, and I mean, that's, that's going to be a general trend, as I said. So, yeah, we're, we're trying to get from get, get somebody blackout drunk and hope for the best to what we're talking about now and you'd be surprised how few steps there are that's going to be the concerning part about this <laughs> we're going to start with uh, a doctor called uh, Hua Tuo who was a Chinese doctor in the second century CE he, he lived from about 145 CE to 220 CE and is famous enough actually to be mentioned in the Romance of the Three Kingdoms hmm. Uh, to give you a bit of context uh, culturally where China is at. Now, to be fair, uh, he died about 10 years before the, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms is set, but that's not going to stop them from putting them in there because, you know, that's how culturally defining origin stories kind of work. Mm-hmm. He was at least as famous. I'm going to say at least, I'm, I'm going to say more famous than, than Galen is uh, in terms of Chinese medicine goes. Uh, if you are Chinese, you've probably heard of Hua Tuo more likely than anyone Western has heard of Galen, I, I'd right. say. He, he was uh, absolutely integral to the understanding of Chinese medicine. And again, these, these really famous doctors usually end up treating the highest ranked members of a society. So again, mm-hmm. he would have been treating emperors, basically. Okay. And Hua Tuo would combine both sort of traditional Chinese herbal medicine and acupuncture with more practical surgical methods for a lot of success. Now, he was best known for creating a substance called mafesan, which literally translates as cannabis boiling powder. <laughs> and mafesan was used to knock people out during surgical procedures. What exactly was in mafesan is still hotly debated. People huh. have no idea what was in it. Can we take a wild guess and say <laughs> powdered cannabis? <laughs> it was a mixture of powdered herbs of some sort that would have been mixed into wine and administered orally. Okay. Um, we, I, I mean, I love the idea that he was just getting them blazed <laughs> on weed and then they were just like too relaxed to care that he was doing <laughs> surgery on them. But uh, realistically... You know, the problems of translation from ancient Chinese, mm-hmm. as well as the problems of taking something like this literally, 
we we just don't know what was in it. There there's always contenders coming up of of what would have been in Mafesan because it was it wasn't just cannabis. Even though cannabis was traditionally used in Chinese medicine, mm-hmm. um, I forget which one it's good for, yin or yang. I think it might have been good for both. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna double check that. I feel like I heard one time it was good for both. So I, could you then go to like a traditional practitioner of Chinese medicine and be like, hey, so. I've got me some bad anxiety these days. Can you uh, can you hit me up with some of the good stuff? You mean like today? Could I go down to somebody and get like? Yeah. No, I feel like that <laughs> wouldn't work. I feel like I feel like if you want a card, I feel like you still have to go through your doctor. But uh-huh. hey, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, he's working his way through. He's gonna get us some. He's some gonna get us some legal weed. I promise, he's the best. No, it's. <laughs> ridiculous talking about it these days i don't know they're they're targeting some drop in in its classification i think by 2017 i don't know Mm -hmm. uh there's so many political (laughs) issues at play here that i i don't really trust most of the stuff i read um anyways that's a completely different issue (laughs) uh in general no a chinese uh, chinese medicine practitioner would not prescribe you marijuana that i know of Mm -hmm. but yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I see stuff like this and and find, uh, find out that, you know, some Chinese emperor literally smoked weed every day as some sort of cure for something under the Chinese herbal medicine system. And I think, like, maybe they were just making an excuse. I don't know for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe. Maybe. You see similar things uh, today for, uh, you know, drinking tea every day or drinking coffee every day or yeah. having a glass of red wine every day or eating, co- or eating chocolate every day, right? Where yeah. it's kind of like, maybe you should just like have some chocolate and live your life and not try to like bring antioxidants into this whole thing. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I have no clue. But I, I'm not going to judge you for eating some dark chocolate. It's delicious. It's your life, bro. Just do what you want. Eat your chocolate. Yeah, follow your bliss. It's fine. <laughs> Anyways, getting getting real off topic. The the thing is, we don't know that Mafei-san worked. We don't even know that it existed because Huatuo was actually treating a a Chinese emperor for uh, chronic migraines, mm. and he was treating it with acupuncture. Actually, treating it fairly successfully, apparently. Mm-hmm. But the the emperor got suspicious that Huatua was actually prolonging the illness because he couldn't cure it outright. It was always like a temporary cure, a temporary right. cure. I had see. to keep going back to him. And he got really upset about the whole thing. Thought that Huatua was doing this for both monetary gain and for like prestige, for fame, and decided to uh, have him executed. Oh. Yeah, super good idea, dude. Okay. <laughs> um, Huatua actually believed that he may have had a, a brain tumor and had asked if it was possible to perform surgery, according to some accounts. I mean, you know, the problem with stuff like this is that it's, it's hard to tell what is true and what's not from somebody that's that far back, mm-hmm. especially when accounts defer, that I, I'm just going to kind of put this information out there and decline to, you know, pass judgment on its, on its truth because I, I, I don't know. But it, it's possible that he may have asked for uh, permission to perform surgery to see if he could relieve some of the swelling because he believed that's what was causing it was a it was a brain tumor that that was producing swelling and therefore headaches mm-hmm. and that's why acupuncture was helping to 
uh, to treat it was that he was actually helping to relieve some of the pressure. Right. Now, again, I, whether or not that's true, I don't know. But the, the truth of the or what we do know is that Hua Tuo was executed. And we also know that he destroyed all of his medical texts before he died. He was very bitter about being executed yeah. and decided that he, he was afraid that the emperor was going to hoard this knowledge. I see. Uh, and he decided that since he couldn't trust the the knowledge to be uh, passed on properly, he wanted to, uh, he, he decided he would rather have it destroyed. And so he burned all of his medical writings. And this is 1800 years ago. So that was the only copy. Oh, and man. so we have no idea what was in Mafesan or if Mafesan ever existed. Right. Um, but I mean, it probably did. It's just a matter of what was in it is uh, that's a that's a bit of a subject of debate. Mm-hmm. Confucian thought came into uh, I don't want to call it into vogue in in China because that really doesn't do justice to mm-hmm. how much Confucian philosophy kind of took over Chinese society, right? I mean, yeah, it's there's very little comparable in Western history, is yeah. There? Other than possibly Christianity, but but Confucianism isn't. Uh, a religion, a religion it's, yeah. it's a it's a philosophy and so it's it's kind of hard to describe just how uh how totally confucianism affected not only uh, chinese culture but by extension uh, a number of other cultures in east asia mm-hmm. uh, but because as we talked about in the first time confucianism believed that the body was uh, sacred any sort of study of anatomy uh post-mortem fell out of vogue and the medical profession swung so far towards the the philosophical, towards the internal medicine side of things, toward the um, attempts to balance qi within the body, that really there was no hard examination of Hua Tuo's work for a very long time after this. Mm. Um, he uh, was known as a like a legend within within China, but uh, not as a, a serious. Um, source of knowledge to be emulated or to be chased for a very long time. In fact, we're going to jump ahead to 18th century Japan with uh, a doctor called uh, Hanaoka Seishu, who believed that it was important to learn both from Chinese medicine, which would have been the norm in Japan at the time, Mm -hmm. and from Western medicine, which was very much taboo at this point in time. This is uh, the Edo period and really the only Western uh, academia that's entering the country is through two ports on kind of the southwest end of Japan, where uh, basically the Dutch are the only ones that are allowed to, uh, from Europe, that are allowed to trade into Japan, and even then with very strict rules about that trade. Mm-hmm. So he managed to get his hands on some Dutch texts about medicine and started kind of incorporating that into his medical practice with quite a bit of success. Mm-hmm. But he was fascinated by the idea of Hua Tuo and by the idea of Mafei San. And he decided that he wanted to figure out what Mafei San had been. He wanted to figure out how he had managed to, because I mean, it's fairly clear when in the writings about Hua Tuo, um, how totally um, Mafei San managed to render someone unconscious and unfeeling, which mm-hmm. for any surgeon that has been working without those things, yeah. uh, that's an invaluable thing, right? And so Hanaoko Seishu, he went on a crusade to figure out what is in this stuff. And he started 
making up various uh, herbal blends of, of substances that he believed should render someone unconscious mm-hmm. and started testing it on people. And uh, he had a number of volunteers that he was working with. And his, his wife actually ended up going blind from one of the, oh, no. uh, one of the failed formulas. Uh, but eventually he actually managed to figure out a, a, a successful uh, and effective anesthetic which he ended up calling Tsusen-san. And it was made mainly of Korean morning glory, monk's hood, ginseng, and some some other herbs. Mm-hmm. And again, it would be dried, ground, put in wine, and, and administered to the patient. And I, I mean, Korean morning glory, uh, that stuff will make you hallucinate. Mm-hmm. Um, monk's hood, that's a poison. It's It's not really a healthy thing to be taking. <laughs> like it's... Again, anesthesia is very, very dangerous, but he's trying to find that middle ground in between poisoning someone to death and them waking up halfway through surgery. So he managed to figure out kind of an optimal dose where you'd give it to somebody, they would fall unconscious within the next two to four hours, and then he had anywhere between six and 24 hours before they woke up again to do a surgery uh, with them completely unconscious. Now, this is very, like, unscientific. It's very, (laughs) like... Yeah, we'll we'll see how it works because a key part of anesthesia is how it interacts with the the patient, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what's so tricky about modern anesthetic is that you're you're trying to work out the optimal dose so that anesthesia works the same way on everybody Mm -hmm. by working with the dose rather than giving a standard dose to everybody and hoping for the best on its effect. In 1804, uh, he successfully used uh, Tsusen-san to perform a partial mastectomy for a 60-year-old woman mm. and successfully remove uh, breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And she it, it worked perfectly. She was unconscious through the entire procedure. Wow. She lived afterwards. I couldn't find a record of how long she lived, but, I mean, she lived through the she procedure. She survived the surgery, yeah. And, I, I mean, that's, that's incredible. This is the first reliable record of anesthesia being used in a, in a surgery. Wow. Which is absolutely fascinating. And no one in the West heard about it because no. Japan was still locked right down for another 60 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so people had no idea that this had happened. But that was the first doctor who, uh, who performed, so cool. performed uh, surgery with an- an- anesthesia. And actually in his honor, the Japanese Society of uh, Anesthetists has Korean morning glory in uh, their seal. Like a oh, picture of Korean cool. morning glory. That's yeah, nice. I thought that was... A nice little touch. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he continued to use uh, Tsusen-san successfully through many, many operations, over 150 mastectomies and, and countless other surgeries because it, it worked well. And, and I mean, like I was saying earlier, uh, surgeons are going like, How, give me some of this stuff. I mm-hmm. want it. Not just because it makes surgery easier, because, I mean, let's face it, operating on somebody who is in just agonizing pain yeah. is not easy. No. Just from like the mechanical standpoint of doing the surgery and, and being precise about it, let alone having to go through the stress of causing someone that much discomfort. Yeah. And I mean, that kind of plays into that whole separation that we've been talking about of surgeons and doctors where surgeons have that whole, you know, first do no harm uh, yeah. mentality where, you know, we don't hurt our patients, we help our patients. Yeah. And then you've got some guy sawing through a leg bone to save the rest of his life because his foot has gone gangrenous that does not fit in with that philosophy of medicine being helpful yeah if they can knock someone out to the point where they feel no harm Mm -hmm. 
then the benefits of the procedure, they're not harmful to a point where they're against that uh, Hippocratic philosophy of not harming the patient, right? Yeah. Then the benefit is worth it. Um, so just as human beings having to cause this much discomfort to their patients, surgeons were all about this. They wanted it so badly. So yeah, it was, it, it was you know, he had, he had so many students that were working with this stuff, successfully performing sur- uh, surgeries. But yeah, he himself did hundreds of surgeries using this stuff. And, you know, with that ability to work on someone who's been put under, he's expanding his surgeries into things like uh, removing bladder stones, mm-hmm. uh, which you know, people have been doing beforehand. Uh, people have been removing bladder stones for ages, but removing a bladder stone involves basically making an incision between your legs yeah. and, and going up through into the bladder and doing all of this while someone well, is someone's still awake. someone's awake. Oh. I, I know, I know. And it's, 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 uh, and people would routinely die from this because you're, you're introducing, uh, an incision through yeah. a lot of very important places yeah. into the bladder. And like, it's just, there's so many things that can go wrong. Yeah. And if you can do this while someone is unconscious and do it properly and that they don't remember what they had to go through, mm-hmm. it's so much easier on everyone involved. Everyone. Yeah. Yeah. In 1772, a chemist called Joseph Priestley discovers nitrous oxide, which uh, the other kind of combos of nitrogen and oxygen have been like like extremely fatal. Mm-hmm. And um, so he discovers nitrous oxide and naturally he inhales some. Because <laughs> like that's how that's how they do back then for some reason. I don't know. That's how you science. That's how you learn, I guess. Science <sighs> if I if we had all of the like ethical concerns that are in place around like experiments today, yeah, back when science started, like we would have missed so much stuff. I know there's so much stuff of people just like eating stuff or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's just what? What do you guys? Nah, I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, he he inhales some stuff and he starts feeling real good. And he starts laughing, and he can't stop laughing. And so he nicknames it laughing Laughing gas. gas. And he's like, this stuff is great. And he does nothing with it. (laughs) We're just going to leave him right there. Uh, No, we won't leave him right there. We'll we'll finish this story. (laughs) That's not fair. Um, Really, what what ended up happening with laughing gas is that uh, really rich people would throw laughing gas parties. These got really popular around the year 1800 or so. Sounds awesome. Here's the deal with laughing gas. Almost none of it is actually absorbed into your system, mm-hmm. which means that you can just put a bunch of laughing gas into the air. And even though people are like breathing it in and then breathing it out, uh, it's still good. Okay. Like you're not like using it up. Yeah. So you just put some laughing gas into the air and everyone gets super high. They get all messed up on laughing gas and they have a real good time. This is what rich people were doing in 1800. That's brilliant. I, <laughs> you using science to get as messed up as possible. As many rich people as messed up as possible. Mm-hmm. Good times. It wasn't used in any medical application until 1844 <laughs> when a guy named Horace Wells used it in dental surgery. Mm-hmm. Because the problem with laughing gas is that it doesn't actually put you under it just kind of gets you to a point where you're high, where you're high enough that you don't care. Yeah. And 
that's not great for something like, let's say, those kidney stones that we were talking about earlier. No. Uh, it's perfect for something like drilling some teeth. Yeah. So it kind of found its niche and it's kind of stayed there. And it's actually the only uh, anesthetic that we're going to talk about today that's still in use because it's just kind of perfect for dental surgery. Mm-hmm. Now, they don't flood the room anymore when you're doing dental surgery. They figured out better ways to administer keep, it. Keep the dentists sober. Well, that's the thing. You gotta. It's it's. You have to be like specially licensed to administer it properly because right. it is kind of tricky. Mm-hmm. But basically, they have the thing that like the, the nitrous oxide only flows when the patient is breathing in, mm-hmm. so it minimizes the amount of nitrous oxide that gets into the room. Mm-hmm. And you have to have like a, um, like a an air hood, like a like a ventilation system that like actively pulls out mm-hmm. the nitrous oxide. Uh, in order to use it properly because even once they've breathed it in once they breathe it out it's getting into the room yeah so it's tricky to work with they've gotten better with it um but it's still occasionally used recreationally it's illegal you're not supposed to but it's it's funny they keep finding like there's so many cases of uh hospital workers that have been busted for like just basically taking tanks of nitrous oxide <laughs> home with them to party or you can get them in like little little canisters mm-hmm. famously the accelerant for uh whipped cream used to be nitrous oxide oh um yeah <laughs> kids figured that one out real quick kids I'm are sure. real good stuff like that <laughs> so yeah i mean that stuff works all right for stuff that you don't have to be like right out on and it's kind of it kind of illustrates though pretty much perfectly the life cycle that all of these methods of anesthesia go through where it's like somebody finds them out people party on it a whole bunch and then someone's like oh i guess we could use this for medicine (laughs) (laughs) the next thing we're gonna get to is uh is ether which was synthesized maybe as early as the 8th century Hmm. so it's been around for ages it's basically just ethanol and sulfuric acid and Mm -hmm. you know a Sure, it's harder to make than just mixing the two things together, but not much. Mm-hmm. And once again, mainly used recreationally. <laughs> you have some ether. People have a good time. It took until, again, the 1840s for a guy, an American physician named Crawford Long, noticed that when his friends were rolling on ether, that they could like run into stuff and they wouldn't even notice. Like somebody like like gashed themselves open at a party and just like didn't even care. <laughs> and he was like, "Huh, that's interesting." That has interesting implications. And so he uh, he performed a surgery using ether as an as as an anesthetic in 1842. Problem is, he did not publish it until 1849. Mm. That's a seven year gap. That whole thing about publish or perish. In the academic community, very much true in the medical community, because in 1846, so after he had done the surgery, but before he published, uh, another doctor named William Morton comes along and goes, I've got an idea. We're going to use ether to do a surgery. Oh, man. And he decides to do it publicly. He's like, hey, everybody, come down. We're going to get this guy to have some ether, and then I'm going to do surgery. <laughs> and everyone's like, great. I'm in. I want to cool. watch this thing. Because <laughs> once again, human beings are weird like that, mm-hmm. completely morbid. Love looking at strange stuff. So, yeah, he filled seats no problem. Um, so, for a very long time, uh, Morton was actually credited with discovering the uh, anesthetic properties of ether. Right. Because even though he was four years late to the party, Morton hadn't done, or sorry, uh, uh, Long hadn't done anything to publicize the fact that he had used it. And so, yeah, Morton got, got the accreditation. 
accreditation. Credation? Credation. He got the credit. Became accredited. He's the guy. (laughs) He's the guy. (laughs) Capital G. He's the guy. We nailed it. We got there. We did it. Congratulations to us. Yes. (laughs) That's not the only anesthetic that's floating around at this point in time, though. Um, 1847, you've also got a doctor named James Young Simpson touting the benefits of using chloroform to knock people out. Chloroform had been discovered in 1831, so it was much more recent. And he was like, you know what? That that ether stuff, it's all right. Chloroform, that's where it's at. <laughs> There's like this weird kind of like public feud between him and Morton about like which one was better. Uh-huh. And like there were, again, public demonstrations and people would have like, you know, they'd, they'd volunteer to get like minor surgeries. Like again, abscessed teeth were fairly common for this. Mm-hmm. Removed in front of an audience because, you know, for free as part for, of the yeah. demonstration. And, yeah, you know. Uh, there's this weird medical freak show circus thing going on in the mid 19th century. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it's 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 an odd time in medicine, <laughs> and uh, I mean there are benefits to both. First of all, ether is incredibly flammable. Mm-hmm. It's like very flammable, so that's kind of a hazard. Yeah, of using it. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I mean, like the fumes are flammable, not just the liquid. Yeah, we're just going to barbecue your large intestine. Hope yeah, that's pretty okay. Much. <laughs> However, it's not nearly as toxic or potentially lethal as chloroform is. Mm-hmm. Chloroform is safer to work with until you actually administer it to a human being, at which point it's really easy to go overboard and just kill someone straight up. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, the first incident of someone being given a lethal dose of chloroform is a single year after Longstar or Simpson started using it as mm-hmm. an anesthetic, so in 1847. The problem, partially with all of this, is that at these freak shows, just so like because they're trying to, I hate calling them freak shows, but it is what it is. At these traveling shows, they would sometimes get audience members to administer the anesthetic to show like how easy and safe and awesome oh, it is. And just kind of like get the crowd going, like generally So speaking. did this death occur like in front of an audience? Oh, yeah. Oh. 100%. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's, again, the, the ethics of all of this is just abhorrent. It's, it's yeah. horrifying. Oh, yeah. But, you know, again, it's, it's, it is what it is. That's how people were demonstrating this stuff. And uh, yeah, chloroform gained a lot of popularity, though, when it was given to Queen Victoria in 1853 during her... Uh, uh, during the birth of her son Leopold, they just knocked her right out. Really? Let nature take its course. Yep. Got real popular. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, once those are on the table, all sorts of surgical options open up because, you know, the blood loss issue has been uh, at least somewhat curbed by improvements in uh, ligation, mm-hmm. uh, mostly from battlefield wounds because you get real good at ligating blood vessels when you are amputating someone's leg because otherwise they die. Mm -hmm. That's not as much of an issue. We figured out where everything is in the human body more or less with a lot of mistakes, but we're, we're we're getting better. So we're getting, we're getting to a point where more ambitious surgeries are an option. Now that you can knock somebody out and they don't experience the whole thing, that becomes a practical reality, which is fantastic for the field of surgery. Yeah. One more quick note about anesthetic, because that basically gets us to, Modern anesthesia, I mean, we don't use 
chloroform or ether mm-hmm. anymore. Obviously, we've got much better <laughs> anesthetics that we that we use and on a case by case basis. But in 1884, a doctor named Carl Kohler uses cocaine as a local anesthetic for eye surgery. So it's a local numbing agent. And this is actually at the suggestion of Sigmund Freud, who he was a colleague of. And if anyone's going to know some things about cocaine, it's Sigmund Freud. Because that guy was rolling (laughs) 24-7. He ended up moving to uh, America eventually. And he continued using cocaine as a a local anesthetic for quite a long time. I mean, it wasn't really uh, replaced until uh, Novocaine, which is uh, basically a distilled Mm -hmm. version. It works along the same... Uh, lines as cocaine does for a local anesthetic Mm -hmm. but when he got to america they gave him they gave him a a nickname um which was (laughs) coca-cola and that's the best joke i'm ever going to tell on this podcast because that is the best nickname i've ever heard for a doctor named dr kohler using cocaine to numb areas as a local anesthetic that's fantastic it's amazing (laughs) i need to calm down a little bit about how excited i was to tell that joke So we're going to take a quick break because that gets us more or less to where anesthesia is today. And when we come back, we're going to talk about sanitation. Everybody's favorite, most exciting, uh, possibly the sexiest medical topic there is. Okay, we're back on HI101 here with Yumiko Hachinruther. Hello. And yeah, we're going to talk about a doctor named Ignaz Semmelweis. And this is going to be probably the saddest thing that we talk about today. Oh. Yep. In 1847, Ignaz Semmelweis says to his, uh, the doctors working under him, because he's working uh, at a hospital in Vienna, I need you all to start washing your hands with lime in between every single patient that you see. Lime is like a... Uh, like a chalky substance, uh, you know, it's, it's like a 5% solution because it's, it's very, uh, like it's very acidic. Mm-hmm. It's L-Y-M-E. The reason he asks his uh, doctors to do this is because there's an outbreak of something called uh, puerperal fever or childbed fever. Mm-hmm. And Semmelweis is running uh, an obstetric ward in this hospital. It's, it's where people come to, to give birth. And this fever is running rampant through... Uh, through the hospital, as many as 10% of the patients that are coming through are dying of this fever. Mm. And that's discounting all of the other reasons that somebody dies from childbirth in 1847. I mean, it's it's an incredibly risky thing to go through at this point in history. This disease spreading from person to person is not helping things. Now, the 1840s, we're talking about before germ theory has been put in place. And the main... Uh, theory about why this fever is spreading is uh, miasma theory, which is this idea that somehow disease is transmitted through the air. There's this bad air mm-hmm. and uh, and disease is, is transmitted through uh, it's, it's always very vaguely defined, but bad air so smells or vapors things like that um, which we now know to be complete nonsense but really they were dealing with it basically by airing out the hospital every Every few hours, usually they do it at, at midday, like at, at noon. They'd open up all the uh, windows and uh, let a breeze flow through. And they figured that was pretty much all they could do about it. Mm-hmm. This idea that it could be passed from patient to patient by the doctor 
was socially problematic because doctors, as we've talked about uh, in, in other sections, tended to have a very inflated sense of self just as a stereotype of the group in general, as a mm-hmm. broad overview, yeah. because doctors were gentlemen and gentlemen were a better class of people and uh, a gentleman's hands are not dirty. Mm-hmm. Even when they are, apparently, but like that's like there's this there's this really ingrained uh, sense of uh, relationship between social class and uh, cleanliness, and you saw this in so many places in medicine. I mean, uh, there were massive setbacks in the treatment of cholera, for example, uh, over um, where the disease came from because it was believed that it was, you know, mainly running through poor people because poor people were dirty. That was literally the reason that they were giving for the transmission of cholera. Never mind the fact that uh, if you were of a lower class, you were probably drinking terrible cholera water, Mm -hmm. which was where you were actually getting that uh, disease. But I digress. I mean, there there had been other doctors that had come to this um, conclusion, uh, most notably Oliver Wendell Holmes in uh, the United States, but he didn't really have a good solution for what to do about it. He believed that the best thing to do if you came across a case of puerperal fever was a doctor should take his clothes, burn them immediately, and not see any more pregnant um, patients for six months. Just quarantine yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, which isn't really a viable solution for a doctor, right? Yeah. Uh, eventually, you're going to run out of doctors that can actually treat people very quickly that way. Mm-hmm. So... Semmelweis decided to check on whether or not it was the doctor that was transmitting it from person to person. And he came to this conclusion, actually, after during a procedure, a uh, one of his assistants um, was cut by a scalpel that had been uh, oh. used on a, a, a patient with puerperal fever. And this assistant caught the fever and died. And mm-hmm. he realized that, like, maybe this is actually, like tissue being transmitted from person to person he didn't really have a concept of microbes causing this but he believed it was some sort of uh sort of corrupted tissue that was being passed from person to person the other thing to realize is that at this point in time the idea of a surgeon washing before a surgery was actually it, it wasn't only insulting it was actually counter to surgical culture in that it was believed that the more covered with blood you were, the more accomplished a surgeon you were because you were doing more surgeries. And so like they would actually almost encourage being covered with other people's biohazardous materials as a status symbol. And so Uh. like, yeah, maybe you'll wash your hands after a surgery because they've got some blood on them. You don't want that like all over the place, but they wouldn't wash before. So if there wasn't something visibly dirty about your hands, they wouldn't bother washing. Oh, boy. The problem with childbirth specifically is that you're incredibly susceptible to infection right afterwards. Mm -hmm. Infection takes place... We we talked in the very first section very briefly about the skin and the role it plays, right? The skin is very good at repelling foreign bodies. Anywhere where where, where kind of raw tissue is exposed, you're much more likely to... Uh, contract an infection and one of the largest areas that you can kind of contract that infection is the uterus right after childbirth because you've essentially torn everything out of the uterus and there's Mm -hmm. there's a a raw surface area uh, inside that is 
very, very sensitive to, uh, to uh, infection. There's a lot of transfer between that newly raw wall and the outside. Um, mm-hmm. So if anything comes in contact with it, it can become infected very, very easily. Mm-hmm. So these women were just dropping like flies from this fever oh. because as soon as you give birth, you're all uh, automatically extremely su- uh, susceptible to this infection. Yeah. So any examination by an obstetrician is automatically se- setting them up for um, infection. Once Semmelweis realized what was going on here, he started getting everybody to wash their hands and cut mortality rates by more than 90% in his hospital. Oh my goodness. And so he started saying like, hey, everybody, we should probably start washing our hands. Yeah. And he probably should have been hailed as a hero at that point, but instead faced the same kind of ridicule as we talked about earlier when uh, when we talked about Vesalius challenging Galen's conceptions of uh, anatomy, where people were going, what are you talking about washing my hands? You're saying I'm dirty? mm and he's going, well, no, I'm just saying, like, it's possible for you to transmit infection. And when I started doing this very simple procedure of washing my hands, mm-hmm. I cut, like, here's the the data and look how many women are surviving childbirth now. And this is really important. Yeah. And he got nothing but, like, really, really hostile mm-hmm. reactions from this. That's frustrating. Now, the year after he instituted this hand washing thing... He instituted in 1847. In 1848, he was originally Hungarian, and uh, Hungary went through basically a, a, an attempted independence movement from uh, Austria, which is where he was placed in Vienna. Mm-hmm. And probably completely coincidentally, Semmelweis didn't get his position renewed oh. at the hospital, and Total so ended up going back to the city of Pest. Uh, Budapest used to, used to be actually three different cities, but two of them were Buda and. So they weren't united yet at this point. Mm-hmm. So he was at a hospital in Pest, again, took over a an obstetrics ward. And it actually took this hospital longer for them to allow to allow him to put hand washing into effect. Mm-hmm. It was nearly four years, even though he was like, look what wow. it's doing in Vienna. Look what I managed to accomplish. But once he finally put it in place, it dropped from six uh, 6% to about 0.85%. Uh, mortality rate from this fever um that's about two deaths per year that he was there Mm -hmm. out of around 900 women there were eight deaths which is pretty impressive yeah like really impressive stuff and you know he spent this time you know working uh working in his uh, as an obstetrician trying to get this uh message about hygiene out there and finally wrote his findings like as a as a book and in 1861, it took him a very long time to write this whole thing. But again, faced nothing but hostility and and um, opposition this entire time because there's this culture of, of doctors who are insulted by the assertion that they might be transmitting diseases to their patients. And mm-hmm. it's really, really unfortunate. And he kept getting more and more kind of worked up about this and eventually had what was likely a nervous breakdown over it around the same time that he published his book around 1861 he became obsessed with the topic he wouldn't talk to anybody without bringing up Mm -hmm. the importance of hand washing and surgery uh he became likely depressed he was he was completely and he'd faced hostility for so long that he wasn't really able to like civilly engage in the conversation about 
uh, hygiene Mm -hmm. in, in the practice of medicine anymore. He would write hostile letters to other doctors about what was going on anyone who criticized his book he would directly engage them but Mm -hmm. like in very like hostile and 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 overtly angry tones which honestly i can completely understand yeah he would call doctors who opposed him murderers for not following his regime and i mean it's it's one of those things where i can understand why he's so upset i can also understand why anyone who didn't hear about him until 1861 would probably write him off as completely out of his mind. Mm -hmm. And the people who counted him as out of his mind expanded to the point where even his wife believed him to, to be insane. And between her and, and his colleagues and his employers, they ended up actually having him committed to an insane asylum, which is not somewhere you want to be in 1865 in Hungary. He lasted about two weeks Oh. Treatment in insane asylums at this point in time, I don't have to tell you, uh, is barbaric, mm-hmm. I guess would be a, a reasonable adjective to use there. I mean, he was kept in a tiny cell in a straight jacket, beaten by the orderlies. He was, uh, uh, you know, they, they doused him in cold water, all sorts of just horrible, horrible things like yeah. in the name of treatment, I guess. I, I, I Anything mean, but humane. It, it's It's really upsetting to hear about i mean this man started a a medical revolution and was i don't know how we could have treated him worse for it yeah um so yeah he 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 ended up dying after about two weeks being there most likely from uh internal bleeding from the the beatings administered by the guards Mm -hmm. yeah it's 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 an incredibly depressing story Mm -hmm. um at the exact oh and and i should mention uh the person who took over the obstetrics ward after him, the mortality rate from childbed fever jumped back up to 6% almost immediately upon this man taking over. And nobody said a word. There was no internal investigation as to why. That's so terrible. Yeah. It's it's really, really awful. Uh, more people should know about Semmelweis. He was incredibly important to modern medicine. Yeah. The exact same year as he was committed to an insane asylum, Louis Pasteur is doing the the bulk of his work on germ theory. He's working on the pasteurization of wine, actually, initially. He also broadens that to beer, to milk, to other things, and is, is working out what it is exactly that infection is or that contamination is, mostly uh, through... Uh, he, he didn't initially mean to confirm germ theory of disease he got there by refuting spontaneous generation which was this theory that basically life sprung from nothing uh, mm-hmm. automatically which was uh, you know basically supported by leaving rotting food out and you know maggots would form mm-hmm. on the surface and he was the first to like take rotting meat and stick it in a sanitized and and sealed off bottle and show that it didn't generate anything when you know no flies could get to it to lay some eggs yeah but in, in any case we're, we're getting off topic again he was basically demonstrating to the world that like yeah there are little tiny creatures that we can't see with our eyes and they probably can make us sick and that would explain a lot of things about the transmission of disease uh, he also ended up working on vaccinations for uh, most famously rabies hmm. um, but for a number of other diseases and a doctor in uh, in england named joseph lister heard about this and he uh basically pasture said there were three main ways that you could kill uh, microorganisms 
heat uh, through the application of substances like like sanitizing substances mm-hmm. or oh my goodness I forget the third one off the top of my head I'll have to put it in the notes uh, but really the only one that works is the application of substances in like a surgical uh, scenario because you can swab somebody with something you can't really heat them up to a point where it kills microorganisms that's not super yeah. good for them so there was a substance called carbolic acid which had been relatively recently discovered Lister used this to disinfect. There was a boy that came in with a compound fracture, and and compound fractures are especially susceptible to uh, infection Mm -hmm. when they break the skin. He swabbed the the boy's wound with carbolic acid as part of the treatment, and the normal infection that usually comes from compound fractures never uh, never appeared because he had sanitized the wound. Mm -hmm. And he went, okay, well, this is great. Everybody that's working under me, now what you're going to do is always wash your hands with carbolic acid. We're going to swab everything down with carbolic acid. You're going to wear gloves all the time. Uh, you're going to change gloves in between patients. Uh, we're going to sterilize the inf- uh, the instruments with carbolic acid. And we're going to have no porous materials in the operating room. Mm-hmm. He just went nuts on the sterilization. Basically, everything that's done in a modern surgical theater, with some tweaks, obviously, mm-hmm. but... Mm-hmm. All of that stuff is still done. Yeah. And it's really, really important that he did this. I, I mean, he he, basically in one move changed the way we sterilize hospitals because we didn't before. Again, this is when we're talking about surgeons walking around in, in bloody aprons because it made mm-hmm. them look cool, I guess. Yeah. Uh, they, they thought they looked really cool wearing... Uh, what was the the phrase? Something about the stiffer the apron, the better the surgeon. Oh. Stiff meaning like, you know, yeah, from, like from the dried, dried blood. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, even even uh, surgical instruments at this point in time would have handles made out of things like wood or out of, uh, you know, ivory even. Mm-hmm. And he was like, no, those will hold infectious materials. Yeah. You know, not going to happen. You can't have those anymore. He worked on, yeah, methods of sterilizing all of the instruments with carbolic acid and steam. I, like, absolutely revolutionized surgery overnight by doing all of this stuff. Actually, Listerine is named after... Uh, I was actually wondering about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's named after Joseph Lister. He had nothing to do with the formulation of it. It was made by uh, an American guy named Joseph Lawrence, who basically wanted to sell Listerine as a uh, surgical antiseptic. So he wanted to use it in the place of carbolic acid to like clean out uh, surgical mm-hmm. sites. Mm-hmm. Um, it never took off as that, but basically, in in 1905, they figured out, hey, we can market this as a way of preying on people's fears about bad breath (laughs) which is which is basically a not a thing that people worried about too much before listerine and be a pretty good way to sell you know a failed surgical antiseptic that's true and the original listerine is that that weird brown color that you see of like the the original formulation of listerine right essentially the same yeah which is kind of interesting um (laughs) I, I'm, I'm sure they've tweaked it a little bit here and there, but it's it's really very much the same thing as as uh, Lawrence invented in 1879. So it was named after Lister, basically, like not even to to uh, capitalize on his name, but because the idea of surgical sanitation had so much become associated with Joseph Lister that it was basically doing what things like the word Kleenex are doing now. It had right. basically become synonymous with that thing, even when it wasn't actually yeah. uh, associated with that thing proper. People heard Lister and they knew that we were talking about clean surgeries, about disinfecting things, about getting rid of uh, germs. Mm-hmm. So 
I, I mean, Semmelweis is important because he figured it out. He figured out the problem. He he figured out the solution and no one listened to him. What's important about Lister is that he had heard of Semmelweis. He knew about cleaning up, but he also listened to Louis Pasteur, figured out why it was important mm-hmm. um, and applied it in a, in a practical setting to modern surgery. And again, essentially overnight, fixed one of the main problems with surgery, which is that anytime you cut into somebody, it's probably going to get infected if you're not careful enough. Yeah. He figured out how to be careful enough that you can do these surgeries in a safe manner and not expect infection as one of the outcomes. Mm-hmm. Now it was still possible, but it was something that can be avoided and should be avoided. And if it happened, was a mistake. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, Joseph Lister is, is again, one of those names that I think is is really, really important that I think a lot of people probably haven't heard of this dude. Yeah. Even though the number of lives that he's managed to sort of indirectly save in, you know, the century and a half since then is, is I'm sure, in the millions. Yeah. So that's really solving all of the problems with surgery that, uh, or, or most of the main uh, problems with th- surgery and gets sanitation pretty much to where we are today. Again, there's been massive improvements, but mainly it's been variations on the themes that Lister set up for us. Mm-hmm. Keep everything clean. Don't let it get infected. Then you don't have to worry about infection as a consequence of surgery. Again, makes that bar of entry into surgery as a viable treatment for something that much lower because it's that much less dangerous to the patient. Yeah. The last one that we uh, need to, needed to worry about was blood loss mm-hmm. because we already figured out how to stop losing so much blood. What we hadn't figured out was how to replenish losing too much blood, which is sometimes inevitable in surgery and sometimes is always uh, has already happened in whatever trauma has you know put someone in the position where they require surgery. Mm-hmm. We have been fascinated with the idea of giving people more blood for as long as we've been consu- uh, we've been concerned with blood as one of the four humors hmm. we could uh, because remember sometimes the problem with humorism isn't an excess of something it's a lack of something right but really the best way we had of giving someone a boost of one of the humors was to give them food that was no- yeah and i'm using a lot of air quotes here but give them a food that was known to create that humor within the body okay and i mean for Blood, for example, uh, hot foods or, or foods that were considered hot and wet. Uh, these are more classifications and actual descriptions of the physical food. Mm-hmm. But foods that had those properties were known to create blood. And so you just feed them a bunch of that, which obviously is no help to anyone <laughs> if you've just gotten your leg cut open yeah. on the battlefield, right? Like that's not helpful at all. We figured, hey, can we just pump more blood into the person and the answer is really no uh that's kind of harder to do than intuitively it seems like it should be one of the first things that we decided to do was uh you know what one person giving up blood to another person seems like it might have some like strange moral maybe spiritual Mm -hmm. um implications um let's just give them some animal blood see what happens there and so, like, there were a lot of experiments, like, in the 17th century kind of thing mm-hmm. of, like, giving people, like, pig's blood or dog's blood or just, like, pick a blood. People tried putting in people. Mm-hmm. Cow's blood, horse blood, whatever. And weirdly enough, this never worked. 
Yeah. I'm not sure why. <laughs> you had the odd success. Usually it was because they had given someone such a small amount of that blood that the allergic reaction was survivable. Mm-hmm. It's not because that helps the person in any way, shape, or form. That's super bad for you. If you don't know this, don't ever put animal blood in a person. It's it's the wrong way to go. Kids, don't try this at home. I don't know. Quick little PSA, I guess. <laughs> The first successful blood transfusion was in 1818 by a doctor named James Blundell. He got lucky. And the reason he got lucky was that the person, er, the, the subject actually survived the blood transfusion because blood, like anything else in the human body, is specific to the person. Mm-hmm. And you can only get so much different um, from that person's own physiology before the body starts seeing that substance or that tissue as a Ford invader and attacking it. And then you get into a whole immune reaction Mm -hmm. uh, issue. It's essentially, it's essentially an allergic reaction to this foreign tissue. And uh, that's no good for anybody. Mm -hmm. Blundell got lucky because apparently the people that he was operating on had similar enough blood types that the body was able to accept the blood and not freak out and kill the person. Mm -hmm. Once Blundell figured that out, There were a number of doctors that worked with blood transfusions for a very long time, but it wasn't until 1901 that uh, Carl Landsteiner figured out that there are blood types. Oh, okay. Blood typing was not really uh, an intuitive thing. Like they, they, he, he kind of happened on it by accident in the lab because typing blood basically involves taking blood from one person, taking blood from the other person, mixing it together and seeing how it reacts. Hmm. Those initial three blood types, A, B, and O, are based off of basically the first people that he typed the blood from, which was himself and some of his uh, assistants. Mm -hmm. They worked out three blood types from this. Now, there are a lot more blood types than that, but those are actually the building blocks of the three like most common larger groups of blood types. I mean, each one has a positive and negative style. There are mixes of them. It gets gets crazy, but... (laughs) Yeah, in 1901, they finally figured out that if you're giving somebody blood, you need to match their blood type. Once they figured that out, fantastic. All bets are off. Uh, Things like blood banks started being established during the First World War. Mm, Uh, Again, battle-driving sort of surgical innovations. And also the fact that the First World War was kind of unique in the number of injuries that were survivable, which seems counterintuitive. It feels like... When you get better at war, you should get better at killing people. Yeah. Uh, the kind of creepy and, and disturbing reality of it is that a wounded but unable to fight soldier is a bigger drain on your enemy's resources than a dead soldier. Because they are spending time, money, effort, people on keeping that person alive. That's a good point, actually. It's creepy. And yeah. it's 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 really distasteful to think about i never would have yeah imagined that that would have been a reason it seems like a dead soldier should be a if you're fighting a war that should be the 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 ultimate goal yeah no nope if you can wound a soldier but he's still alive that's tactically speaking a more useful goal Hmm. yeah (laughs) war it's just the coolest right oh yeah just the best um so yeah, you've got you've got all these um, new fancy weapons like uh, you know shells full of shrapnel that are doing things like blowing people's legs off rather than <laughs> you know the, rather than killing them outright, and you have to deal with 
the amount of trauma and blood loss that goes along with that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, people are, are collecting blood to help these soldiers survive because the weird math of how that works out on the other side is that the most tactically useful thing to do with a, a wounded soldier would be to let him die. But obviously you can't do that. You have to treat him, mm-hmm. right? So you can't be as coldly calculated about your own men so you have to spend those resources on figuring this stuff out and they had so many injured soldiers so many chances to figure out how to make this work that kind of in the long run overall it ends up helping you figure out how to use things like blood banks and blood transfusions effectively Mm -hmm. but at a pretty steep price yeah for sure so i mean once once something like blood transfusion becomes i don't want to call it easy or or even normal necessarily but doable like something that we know how to do mm-hmm. Surg- surgery has become a lot more survivable because in a surgery that you know someone is going to lose too much blood in you can just queue up a whole bunch of replacement blood yeah you can prepare in advance for that exactly and someone can survive that whereas before it was kind of like if you lose more than x amount of blood in a surgery that surgery is not survivable yeah there's a zero percent survival rate yeah this makes more surgeries an option And you start seeing that in the development of attempts at organ transplants. People have been fascinated by the idea of organ transplants forever. There's a story about a Chinese doctor who apparently performed uh, a heart swap in two people like 2,000 years ago. I don't believe Hmm. that story. A lot of stories about stuff like this end up becoming mythologized, kind of, uh, you know, exaggerated. I don't believe for one second that that happened. Not at all. But the story is there, and clearly it's something that people both thought about and considered to be a highly skilled and like highly prized medical procedure. Mm-hmm. And the heart's always been like the the gold standard of, of yeah. organ transplant. People have always wanted to do that one. That's that's been the that's been the goal for a very long time. Now, the first successful organ transplant was thyroid tissue in eighteen eighty three by Theodore Kocher. I don't know how to say that name. I'm going to say Kocher and I'll put a pronunciation in the notes. <laughs> Some of these German names I cannot do. Um, the guy was treating goiters, which is a, a swelling of the thyroid, right? And he got so good at removing goiters, he was actually able to remove the entire thyroid, like 100% intact from subjects' uh, necks mm-hmm. while they stayed alive, which is pretty cool. Like that's that's kind mm-hmm. of amazing for, for the 1880s, right? But the problem is that he was running into uh, patients who were basically exhibiting all of the symptoms of not having a thyroid, which is a lot of endocrine problems, right? Yeah. Hormone imbalances. So he realized that like, no, when he does this like entire thyroid removal, he has to basically take and like leave the thyroid itself in there while removing the goiter. And so the easiest way for him to do that was to take, remove the entire thyroid, goiter included, remove the, thi- uh, remove the goiter itself and replace the thyroid. Mm-hmm. So... This is technically a transplant. I mean, there were there are earlier auto transplants. Auto transplant being like tissue from yourself. We we talked about that um, with the inner thigh for the nose. Yeah, yeah. From Sarushta, the the um, Indian surgeon. Again, we don't have confirmations that that worked, which is why we kind of don't count it as much. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't know. It's it's hard with stuff that that long ago because we. We might run into a situation where he's talking about it in theory when he never actually managed to do it in practice. I don't know. 
and and so people have a little more doubt that way whereas mm-hmm. there's there's absolutely no doubt that this doctor managed to do this thyroid transplant but i mean it still counts you're still detaching something and then reattaching it yeah it's 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 very very impressive but you run into a problem when you try to move anything from one person to another of rejection, which is, again, this this autoimmune problem where the body sees foreign tissue as an invader, as mm-hmm. an infection, as, as essentially, and attacks it. The The actual mechanism behind it was di- uh, discovered in 1902 by a doctor named Alexis Carell, and it took them a while to like really figure out how to suppress the immune system to a point where you could actually accept an organ from another person. Mm-hmm. We got x-ray imaging in 1895. It was invented by a physicist, uh, Wilhelm Röntgen, which allows us to see inside the body before we start cutting, mm-hmm. which is really useful because then you can actually plan out what you're trying to do. Yeah. Beforehand, you got to start cutting and like see what's in there when yeah. you get in there. Very, very, very useful. And I mean, imaging systems have just gotten more and more sophisticated as we've gone, obviously, to the point where you get uh, endoscopy so where you actually put a a camera into where you need to work sometimes even surgery with endoscopy where you're making only the tiniest of incisions and and working underneath the skin you've got ct scans mris all sorts of great stuff to see what's going on before you actually cut in there but the x-ray is really the first time that we can actually see anything about the inside of a person yeah before we open them up very very useful Uh, What else do I have on this? Penicillin invented in 1928, obviously by Alexander Fleming. Uh, Mm -hmm. It didn't see wide use until the Second World War. Again, uh, warfare being uh, kind of a necessity for inventing new medical procedures. But once penicillin comes into use, all of a sudden the risk of infection, which has already been brought very low by uh, Joseph Lister's innovations virtually disappears because if somebody gets surgery pop them on around a penicillin mm-hmm. they're just not going to get sick they'll be fine usually i mean <laughs> not 100 percent, but you know it's very very helpful and i mean to this day standard procedure with a surgery is to take antibiotics to yeah. make sure that you don't get an infection mm-hmm. you got a lot of weird sort of self-surgeries going on around this time because people had the imaging but also because people were getting to a point where they wanted to do surgeries that were so ambitious because they had the tools Mm -hmm. that they seemed either impossible or too risky to perform on patients. And so doctors were getting denied the ability or the the permission to perform the surgeries, even if they had willing patients. Right. And yeah, you run into a whole bunch of stuff where doctors are performing surgeries on themselves, which is really creepy, Mm -hmm. but also sometimes really, really interesting. Probably the most famous case of this was a doctor named Werner Forsman in uh, 1929. He believed that we could get all the way from the arm to the heart through the veins. Veins or arteries. I got that one wrong, probably. Notes it is. Um, <laughs> well, actually, you know what? No, not notes, because he ended up doing both. Because, you know, one leads to one side, one leads to the other, right? Mm-hmm. But the hospital that he was working at would not give him permission to uh, do the surgery on anyone. Right. Because they're like, number one, that sounds like the most dangerous thing I've ever heard of. You want to stick something inside your heart all the way up through uh, these blood vessels. Mm -hmm. Number two, what's going to happen to your heart when something is inside it? So he's like, okay, fine, I get it. Then like after hours, he got like a nurse to help him out. The nurse was like, you can't do this on yourself. He's like, you know what? You're right. Help me prepare all the instruments. We'll get it set up. And 
she's like, yeah, I'll, I'll be the subject for this. And he's like, okay, I'll, I'll use you as my subject. And then restrained her. <laughs> Once they were all prepared, restrained her, made the incision and threaded the catheter up his own arm and then didn't like release her until it was like so far in him when that it, he was like, okay, well, it's in there now. Might as well just work with me as the, as the subject. Took her down to radiology and took like x-ray pictures of this catheter being inside his heart. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Side note on this dude, before you like get too into him, he was like straight up full on Nazi, like joined the party in 1932. It was nowhere even close to being compulsory. So not a great dude, Yeah. but like did some interesting medical stuff. Just, you know, FYI. Yeah. 1961, there was a Soviet uh, doctor stationed at Antarctica where he was the station uh, medic, Leonid Rogatsov. And he was the only doctor there and he contracted appendicitis oh boy and so he conducted his own appendectomy because he was the only doctor on antarctica oh man huh it happens i guess (laughs) i guess i guess just one of those pesky little life milestones meanwhile they're still working away at organ transplants 1954 first successful organ transplant but it's kind of cheating because there was a set of identical twins where one of them went through kidney failure and so one of them gave his kidney to the other one genetically identical no chance of rejection right so it's kind of cheating a little bit still incredibly uh impressive though it's the first time that an organ was donated from a live subject to another person successfully they've spent the the decades since we talked about rejection being discovered trying to figure out ways of of suppressing it basically they finally figured out drugs that would do it properly uh cyclosporine mainly to start doing transplants from uh, one person to another successfully as long as they were a close enough match and in 1967 the first successful heart transplant was done uh in south africa and successful uh patient lived 18 days okay so (laughs) Did they pass away due to complications of the procedure or totally unrelated? Uh, he was not well. Okay. It wasn't complications of this, the procedure itself. He did not have... Uh, it, and, and the reasons gets, he needed the procedure in the first place, maybe. Yeah, it gets really technical about like whether or not it was a procedure's fault. Because technically, they completed the procedure and he was alive. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like... I don't know. I mean, he already had a terrible cardiovascular system. That's why he needed Needed a heart transplant. I doubt that the surgery helped him any. Mm -hmm. But technically, he lived about 18 days longer than he would have otherwise. That qualifies as a successful transplant in that the transplant occurred and he lived after the surgical procedure was complete. Somebody else's heart beat in his chest for 18 days did its job of moving the blood around and uh, that counts. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, that's not an easy uh, procedure to go through, especially in 1967 where they're very, very bad at it. It's the first time um, they had tried it in animals and stuff. Like mm-hmm. the surgeon knew what he was doing. They had practiced on cadavers and live animals, but yeah, it's still, it's still a really tricky procedure. Once he did it though, there was just an explosion in the number of surgeons who were willing to attempt it mm-hmm. because somebody had pulled it off. Now we knew that it was possible. Yeah. A lot of surgeons who were turning it down is just like theoretically too risky. were now willing to try it. And I mean, 
in the next two years, there were a couple hundred heart transplants that were done with varying amounts of success. And by 1984, it had been perfected to a point where uh, two thirds of patients lived for five years or more Mm -hmm. after their transplant, which is pretty good. Yeah. I mean, five years doesn't seem like a long time, but you needed a heart transplant. That's five free years. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to measure uh, success on something like that because, you know, just because the guy didn't live to be 95 doesn't mean we should necessarily discount the procedure as being unsuccessful, right? No, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, really, once you get to the point where you're doing successful heart transplants, I think we have to call modern surgery pretty much, we've, we've pretty much gotten there. I mean, mm-hmm. again, the, the breadth of, of types of procedures keeps growing and growing with uh, the availability of both sanitary conditions and all of the criteria of sanitary conditions, anesthesia, blood transfusion, Mm -hmm. all of that stuff is absolutely necessary. But you get into crazy stuff like multiple organ transplants. Mm -hmm. You get into brain surgery is just anything that you think about or anytime I think about brain surgery is just like the idea of pulling that off successfully is just amazing because, you know, one one millimeter to the to the side one way or the other and you've uh, you've got the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's incredibly delicate work, and and just the amount of respect for the people who can do that stuff successfully is is, I I have so much respect for that work. 1983 saw the first robotically assisted surgery, hmm. which is kind of cool. Um, you get into machines doing work that humans might not necessarily be able to do, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I think that's about as much of an overview as I can give for surgery. Uh, given the amount of time that we have, yeah. given my amount of medical knowledge, which is not <laughs> much, and trying to keep it as exciting as possible. Was there anything that like you were really curious about that we didn't have a chance to get into? No, I mean, I, I thought the entire thing was really fascinating, and I wasn't really sure what to expect going into it. But Okay, that's good, because neither did I. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's it's not a topic that I know a lot about in a ton of detail either. I've sort of touched on aspects of what you've discussed through mm-hmm. my own kind of studies, but it was really interesting to hear it from, from this perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I looked at it initially and kind of was running down the list of like, you know, in this year, this first surgery happened, and this year, that first surgery happened. And I, yeah. I, I realized it was the wrong way to talk about this stuff, because while we can talk about specific, specific medical procedures, I don't think that's in, as interesting as talking about the world in which these advances are taking place, because mm-hmm. I, I feel like that tells us a little bit more about ourselves. I mean, there's such a small percentage of the, pro- of the population that these advances directly affect their, you know, their skill set, their yeah. ability to perform these things. And a somewhat larger but still some uh, but still relatively small subset of the population where you know a specific procedure is relevant to them and to their their personal lives but mm-hmm. the kind of overall social climate in which these medical advances are taking place the the evolution of that of the uh, of the way we think about doctors of the way we think about surgeons and legitimizing surgery you know in the 19th century and making it you know as well respected as quote unquote real medicine when doctors are <laughs> are you know finally willing to get their hands dirty a little bit if you will you know watching that progress and watching the you know key inventions that allow surgeons today to perform the operations that they do that seemed like the most interesting thing to me yeah. when i was reading up on this stuff so yeah. you know that's that's where the the vast majority of my focus ended up when i was mm-hmm. uh doing this research because I don't know the the ideas uh, the idea of, of someone like 
Semmelweis working in a in a hostile work environment over something as simple as as, as hand washing hand washing before seeing uh, incredibly vulnerable members of the population yeah. in uh, in an environment where there's actually an in de- like currently a major infection going on mm-hmm. that that just seems so difficult for me to yeah it's infuriating to think that a doctor's ego would trump you know the health of yeah. a vulnerable new mother absolutely and i'd like to think that we've moved past that a little bit i, I yeah. i'm sure there's probably plenty of examples where we haven't but man i hope so yeah it's, it's good to be in a time where where advances like this are accepted by the medical community rather than shouted yeah. down over per- personal ego it, yeah. that's that's all it was And I think, too, I mean, from a technological standpoint, it will be interesting moving forward to see how advancements in 3D printing and things like that can be a huge asset to the medical community. Yeah, there's there's so many things that I've I've, I've left out um, that will be so beneficial to specifically to surgery, but medicine in general. 3D printing is a really good example. Mm -hmm. The the things that they can do with uh, 3D printing, both for um, like really structural reasons in, in, in terms of like rebuilding bones and joints, but also bio 3D printing where they're actually creating like a, they're doing really interesting things where they're like basically printing the um, matrix of a heart and then allowing the patient's own stem cells to use that matrix as a frame to mm-hmm. to build a heart from scratch basically yeah, yeah. um it, it's 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 mind-blowing as stem cells as well for therapeutic purposes yeah. um the stuff they're doing with uh lasers in terms of using that as a, a surgical tool I, it, it's it's crazy it sounds like sci-fi nonsense and it, it's yeah just, it definitely does yeah we're 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 very lucky to live in a time where some of this stuff is is coming to the forefront and being used in we are lucky to be living in a time where anesthesia is a thing. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's the one I think of all the things that we talked about in terms of advances, if I had to pick only one of them, I I would take the anesthesia. Yeah. Um, infections suck, but you can get over them. Yeah. Not always, but like you can you can work your way You've through. You've got a shot at it. <laughs> you, you can work your way through. Uh, you know, the the whole the whole anatomy thing, I feel like we would have figured it out by now. Um, yeah oh anesthesia what a what a blessing <laughs> like I, I i i have so much trouble conceiving these things that you take through. for granted that you you know hopefully you'll never be in a situation where you need it but you know <laughs> well i mean i i my my only encounter with anesthesia that i i you know clearly remember all of it i i mean i had it i had it when i was very young to have my tonsils up but i remember very little of that whole mm-hmm. process uh you know as an adult the only one that i remember clearly start to finish was to get some wisdom teeth popped out yeah like, like, <laughs> I, that's such a gratuitous use of anesthesia when put in the context of, of, the of things, things that, like removing like you know kidney stones or something oh or or uh, I, you go as far as organ transplants or yeah um, you know we didn't even talk about things like heart bypass surgery yeah. or there's some some major stuff that you can do to a person's body to to help them medically mm-hmm. that are so traumatic that you would literally like there's no way to survive it without anesthesia yeah and I needed a couple teeth popped yeah like it's it feels it's almost a little bit embarrassing put in that context yeah where where we're just throwing it around like that and even even if i am a little bit embarrassed i'm also thankful for it I oh didn't yeah wanna, didn't want to deal with that i'll take that luxury any day sure absolutely <laughs> and and you know it's also kind of mind-blowing to think about how many of these advances 
happened since, well, in the last 175, 200 years. Mm-hmm. Most of this stuff starts around 1840. We kind of did it by category rather than by year because I think that's a lot more useful to talk about. That's fair, yeah. Um, but the difference between about 1840 and about 1870, just medically speaking, yeah, is night and day. It's phenomenal. It's 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 bizarre to think how much different the surgical experience for the patient and you know and for the the doctor, but especially for the patient would be in that fairly small window of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we're 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 very lucky to live in a time where we can take advantage of those advances and. It can only get better from here. So, yeah, you know, hashtag very... blessed. <laughs> hashtag blessed. I can't think of a better way to end this horrible, gruesome, uh, sometimes very uncomfortable to talk about topic. So, yeah, let's call it a wrap there. Thank you All so right. much for coming on the show. It's always well, thank a... you so much for having me. This was fun. The advances made in the mid-19th century to surgical knowledge completely changed the shape of the discipline, both in terms of viability of procedures therapeutically and for surgery in terms of respectability. The image of the surgeon changed from that of a barber pulling teeth and lancing boils to, in certain cases, the most well-respected physicians. None of this would have been possible were it not for a few small advances that opened the door to modern surgical procedures. Next time in HI101, we'll be talking about the Rachni Wars. That episode will be up on the 1st. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI 101.